This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. 
yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and oh, I got to pray. And well, you could say no. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Overs and unders, we all do it, and it, sometimes it's over. You know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you over do you over schedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could I mean I see it a lot with my clients where they just keep trying and trying and trying to do to have a conversation even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do just not talk? Well, no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years, maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to you skin, don't have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay. There's, but then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just We've got to find a different way of doing things, that, especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it, I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read, we we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had I had Kaylee throw them out. She broke her, she about, darn near broke her back trying to lift this lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters. But then when you look at people like Gandhi, you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, Let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? 
one thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh, one bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm gonna let it go and turn into a horrible evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um what would you say is your worst habit, uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard, I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway, let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. Election Day 2017 seems to have gone smoothly, right? Uh, Election integrity, the extent to which the outcome of the election matches the will of the voter, was not an issue that uh, in the news. I mean, there were a lot of people shocked, right? Like, what? But, um, you know, things could, however, be different in 2018. Concern over election integrity could become amplified if turnout is high and margins are close. Given the stakes in the 2018 midterms that are coming up, uh, which are less than a year away, and other concerns such as reports about Russian hacking, now is the time election officials must begin the critical work of ensuring the integrity of the vote. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Michael Byrne. He's a professor of psychology and computer science at Rice University. Uh, Dr. Byrne, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Thank you for having me. We, I, I guess, it really was when Trump, President Trump, was elected. It, I, I think, it shook a lot of people because, too, he was claiming that there was election fraud, that there was, you know, that the certain places weren't didn't have integrity in the vote. Um, is is this how big of a threat is this really? That that uh, our our ballots aren't working. That there's computer um, people breaking into our voter system. Is is this a is this a real threat? Um, different different aspects of it are are bigger threats than other aspects of it. Um, you know, one of the there are very few election you know voting machines that are actually hooked up to the internet, and so large scale foreign attacks on individual voting machines are spectacularly unlikely. Um, but smaller scale attacks at the local level uh, are not that hard to accomplish, and uh, large scale attacks against, say, voter registration databases 
Um, those are pretty straightforward. So there, there are a lot of potential issues going forward that are not particularly well addressed at this time. Right. In fact, they, uh, they always say, uh, I think it was, uh, who was it? Uh, Tip O'Neill, I think, said all politics are local. And it seems like then all, uh, you know, all voting integrity issues would still end up being local issues, right? Something on the street, something in that area. But no matter what, it could cost a local election. Well, it could cost a local election, and it could cost a larger election. I mean, if if uh, if if someone were to compromise, uh, you know, a couple of very large precincts in a very close election, you know, if it's a close election at the state level, um, you know, Senate seats, congressional seats, those are those are not that hard to compromise, even by targeting a few precincts that the election is going to be close, like the election, the Senate election coming up in Alabama. Right by all the poll numbers, it looks like it's going to be very, very close. If you could compromise a few really, really, really big precincts, um, you could affect the outcome of that election. Well, it's true. I guess uh, Al Gore only lost Florida by four hundred votes in the end. Correct. And and who knows if that was even accurate, right? I mean, I guess this is what it comes down to: is we worry about the technology somehow, somebody breaking into that. But I, I guess really a bigger problem might just be the ballots themselves. The paper ballot. Right. And that's and that's sort of the, you know, Florida is a good example of that. It wasn't, you know, people, lots of people are aware of the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County, and, and that, that created many errors. But there were actually lots of other places in Florida um, where there were problems with the ballot design that, that very easily could have influenced more than 400 votes. Why now? Who designs the ballot? It seems like because this is such a critical national issue on a national election that there there really ought to be one type of ballot, and I guess then that ballot needs to be fitted for every machine. Is that is that the problem, or who designs the ballot, and and why are there so many different versions of it? So ballots are are designed by whoever your local election officials are. Um, in most places in the United States, that's the county clerk or the elections director in the county clerk's office. But in most places, the elections are, are ultimately the responsibility of the county clerk. Um, and it, it's a hard problem because every ballot is slightly different, right? Even if you have a relatively modest-sized county, right, there are different jurisdictions of, you know, some people vote for city council and some people vote for, you know, dog catcher and some people vote for school board and and those those don't all you know match the geographic areas perfectly and so there's you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different ballot styles even in a relatively small county for any any moderately sized election so the opportunity for something to go wrong hmm. uh is quite large wow i guess um what what are the what's what's the fix how do you go about if we have so many different devices so many different ballots that are being created is there any national oversight? Is there any way to make it, you know, universally better for everyone? So, um, so one of the interesting things about about the way elections are regulated is that this is a power that's explicitly reserved in the Constitution for the states. So the federal government can't mandate mm. yeah. that all elections meet certain particular standards. Um, that's that's enshrined in the Constitution. That would be very very hard to change. The federal government can put out voluntary sets of recommendations, um, but and and they have, um, and, but those recommendations didn't really cover a lot about ballot design until the mid 
the mid-aughts. 2007 was the first set of those guidelines that, that really spoke to ballot design. Um, but it's a hard problem. I mean, most of your local election officials are not, you know, they're not usability experts. Right. They're, they're administrative experts. Um, it's, it's getting better. Uh, there have been a lot more resources that have been put out in the last 10 years besides these guidelines. Um, you know, things like uh, the National Association of Election Directors has started talking more to their membership about, you know, how do you do design, and there are some better resources out there. So I think it's changing in the right direction. Um, but it's a slow process, and it's a big, it's a, it's a very large, very complicated problem. And and who, I mean, are there people that have actually studied and, you know, matriculated in designing ballots, or are they just accessibility designers? What are they? I mean, who who started out saying, "Mom, someday I'm going to design a ballot." Uh, where, where does that uh, begin? I don't know that anybody sort of starts out thinking that, that what I want to do when I grow up is design ballots. But it's certainly the, it's certainly the case that if, if the election director is interested in getting someone who knows something about it to do it, that there are a lot of different backgrounds that people might have that, that give them some leverage on usability problems. And certainly designers are, you know, traditional graphic designers are, are part of that group. But there are also people who who do do more about, you know, ballot usability. And there are, there are now some um, great resources out there. There are some books. Um, there's an organization called the Center for Civic Design that has a bunch of resources that are designed to help people who know something about design but not a lot about elections sort of, sort of make that move. Um, so there are some resources mm. out there, uh, but it, it varies a lot as to who actually does the design. Oh, yeah. Well, again, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Byrne, who is a professor of psychology and computer science at Rice University, talking about his article on designing better ballots. You know, Michael, I've, uh, I have an app. I won't name names on the app, but it's an app that I can put in my VIN number on my car and I can see everything that's ever happened to my car. And it's sure. all in the, my hand, and it's so easy to access, and I know everything about it. And I, I sit there and I think, is there not a com- is there not a commercial uh, method that, like a commercial company that could go out and design the ideal, perfect, best practice, and affordably then get it and, and go sell it to all of these cities and states and municipalities. Is that going on, or is that the problem? Is that there's so much competition in the market that we have seventy different versions of of systems and processes? Well, I think that the the larger issue is is um, that every ballot is different, every jurisdiction is different, and so the, I don't think there is a one size fits all solution. Um, I've I've worked with a couple different election officials um, who are trying to design new voting systems and. The constraints are different. You know, the election laws are different in every state. Hmm. Um, what kinds of races end up on ballots are different in every state. Um, things like um, constitutional amendments or other kinds of referenda are handled differently in every state. Um, and so that it's, it's not clear that there is a good one-size-fits-all solution. Let me give you an example of this. So in, I've been working with Los Angeles County, California, and uh, on their voting system, and they've sort of worked very hard to scale their system up so it might be able to handle 75 races on a ballot. Hmm. If Boy. you are in Texas, where I live, 75 races is That's... a small ballot. Really? Right? We vote for every judge at every level here in Texas. Yeah. And so our ballots are, in the last election in Harris County, which is where Houston is located, for most voters, the ballots was, ballot was over 100 races long. 
So there, this creates all kinds of sort of difficulties and constraints if you have different sets of rules and different sort of voting customs. Sure. Uh, so that I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all answer. Well, and it, it was interesting um, to me to, to see that uh, you've got L.A. is decided to design their own system because they couldn't find a system that met their needs. So yep. that, so I guess maybe that's it. You have to do that, and then that costs money, but then it also doesn't necessarily guarantee that, you know, I mean, I can see the first generation of people making this new L.A. version. That'll be a great one, but you may not get the same designer next time. You may not get the same thinker next time. They may not implement it the exact same way. So it does become more uh, problematic. Is there a difference? Are you noticing and is there any research on the difference between electronic versus just paper ballots? So there's been a fair amount of research on the difference between electronic and paper ballots. And it's sort of hard to generalize across everything because different current electronic machines are so different from each other. Right. Some of them are much better than others and some of them are pretty bad. Um, and paper ballots, you can make mistakes on paper ballots, too. So... The question is, you know, in general, what do we know? What we know is that paper's pretty good. Um, the current generation of electronic machines that are sort of out in the wild are actually mostly not as good as paper. Um, but research has, has been done that shows that we can beat paper if we work hard on the design of the electronic system. So we can generate a system that's, that, that produces even fewer errors than a paper ballot. Hmm. So, um, what about voting? And um, I know we're hearing more about this, but voting online, voting from home, the mail-in ballot, uh, because, again, everyone thinks those could be fraught with issues as well. uh, But to me, there's nothing easier for me than my mail-in ballot. That was just such an easy system. Sure. So uh, and mail-in ballots have become very popular, uh, particularly on the on the the West Coast. Um, The the. And, and I think that's probably likely to continue. The thing that, that security people worry about, um, and I'm not primarily a security person, but I hang out with them a lot. <laughs> um, the thing that security people worry about the most is that mail-in ballots have basically no resistance to coercion or vote buying. Hmm. Right? If, if, I'm, if I'm your boss or your coercive spouse or some organization, it's really, really easy for me to show up in your house and say, I'm going to watch you fill out your ballot, and if you don't do it the way I want you to, bad things can happen. Or alternatively, I'm going to show up at your house and watch you fill out your ballot and mail it, and I'll pay you money if you do the right thing. Sure, I'll give you a coupon. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's sure, a coupon. Um, so so there's, there's a lot of security concerns um, in, that, in, the, in the election security community about vote by mail. So that's, uh, um, you know, not, not security so much that that can be hacked. Um, but, you know, most of the cases of voter fraud that have actually been prosecuted in the last 20 years successfully um, involve mail-in ballots. Really? That's the yep. – and uh, overall, though, um, the, if I get it – if I remember correctly, there's not a lot of data showing that we have a, a significant amount of voter fraud, right? Correct. That's right. That's right. Um, I mean, we hear people again, talk about it, but – Real voter fraud doesn't seem to happen as much as we think, like in the in a handful of numbers, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the data certainly suggests that voter fraud is fairly rare. It's hard to know for sure. Um, you know, advocates of the idea that there's a lot of fraud point out that most of the arguments that say there aren't very much fraud are based on the number of convictions. Hmm. And they argue there's a lot more going on than what people actually get charged and convicted with. But there's no evidence that that's true. 
It might be true, but there's no clear evidence that that's true. Interesting. So overall, Michael, anything we can do to to push our our local uh, elections people to to create a healthier, safer ballot for all of us, one that's going to work that that gets the results we need. So I think I think there are a couple things that that uh, you know people who are not already election officials can do, and one of them is they can volunteer to cooperate with election officials. One of the things that would make the life of the election official easier is if they had people who were willing to come in and volunteer to be guinea pigs in a usability test of the ballot. Hmm. Um, one of the things you can do is you encourage your election official to do usability testing of their ballots. Um, not all election officials are quite as far cited about that as others, and, and encouraging that is also important. And one of the other real serious problems is, is and this is not a surprise to anybody, is money. Yeah. Right? There's, there, nobody wants to spend money on, a, on a, administering elections, and the federal government earmarked a whole bunch of money um, after the 2000 election, but all that money's been spent. Uh, and so it's very expensive to replace your voting systems and to worry hard about these problems. Now, L.A. County, because it's the most populous county in the country, you know, can pool resources across the whole county, and they have some money to spend, but a lot of smaller jurisdictions have, have almost no resources to do this. So, you know, support the idea that, that we need to spend some money securing our election system. Great stuff. Great insight, Michael. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Michael Byrne uh, is professor of psychology and computer science from Rice University, just helping us stay awake and alert to, to some of these concerns. 20,000 people's votes were, dis, you know, they were disenfranchised, really, from um, a Democratic County, Duval County in Florida in the, in the uh, 2000 election. 20,000 votes had to be thrown out because of the voting voter system not working. And... Uh, then we're going to make the biggest democratic decisions of our lives on a system that we tried to pay as little as we possibly could for? Scary stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, vote in a, in a hopefully more effective way. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you got the holidays coming up, right? And um, we can give you the countdown. It's basically 16 days away, about uh, 19 or so hours, 16 days, 19 hours away until Santa comes. But the magic can begin much earlier than that. Um, We all know what it feels like to be overwhelmed as a parent, and going through the holiday season, making sure you get everything, and on top of it, making sure that they all have batteries. you got to remember the batteries, or you will have the worst search of your life on Christmas Day as you are brain, or, you know, barnstorming a 7-Eleven to get all the batteries you can. Uh, why I bring this up is, is there a way that we can be more mindful, more present, and find the holiday magic? That is today's topic uh, and the answer, I truly believe, is yes. And I found three little keys or tools that we all might be able to use in order to actually make Christmas a little more magical for ourselves and probably for more magical for others. The first rule is the number one present you can give is to be present. Actually be in the moment. 
And I know that's hard to do because you're constantly planning for the next moment, and then you've got the next party. Tonight we have a church party, and then we'll have a company party, and then we'll have this party, and then this party. And you're moving, and you're constantly on the run. But if you want to actually ever have the magic, you you really need to be where you are. You need to have your head in the game, be in that space. Uh, I've noticed with holidays, though, we got to be careful because for us, you may have a really positive history when it comes to um, these the holiday season, but there are some people that don't. And one of the reasons they may struggle being present in today's holiday is because they've had a very painful past, right? There may have been something that happened around Christmas. There may have been something that reminds them at Christmas time about a, a past issue for them, somebody that they may have lost um, – a divorce, for example. One of the interesting things when I grew up, my parents divorced, but I, I thought it was so amazing because as a child, uh, my mom and dad could be together. Even though they were divorced, they they could still be together or and they, they were separated. They could still be together on Christmas morning. And my dad would come over and we would hang out and my uh, my dad's mom would come over and we would have a Christmas morning as a family. And I thought, how cool is that? But there are others that don't have that positive story. Their parents may have divorced and it meant divided holidays. It meant they they couldn't be with one of their parents over the Christmas holiday because they were with the other parents. So there may be a painful past and that might keep you. There may be pressures of the present. There's so much going on, the gifts, all the all of the running around we have to do. Or it may be the fact that you know that after the holidays in January, you've got to start back to work and you just really dread that. Or there's part of something you've got to do next year that's going to be difficult. And so one of the things that may be keeping us from the present is a painful past or a problematic future or just the pressures of day to day. Another thing you might want to be looking at this holiday season is what is distracting you from being present. Do you have a default distraction, something that you do every time? Is it your phone? Is it the fact that you have this compelling need to have to document every event and take so many pictures and have, you know, and post so many things to social media that you actually aren't even present because you're too busy taking all the pictures? Or is it other things? Is it the fact that you're, you feel this need to control the party and you make sure everything's going perfectly so you get so caught up in being the host that you can't be present? What distracts you? What keeps you from being present? Uh, is it just the anxiety you feel? Is it, is it something like that? Anyway, whatever it is that uh, seems to turn you off of this season, let's watch out for it and let's, let's make a commitment today that we're not going to let it happen. Let's see if we can't improve our pains from the past and, and, and recreate them into something really powerful today. Another thing I found that helps me stay more present in the holidays is to sense the magic, I call it. If you think about it, all of your great memories about Christmas, Christmas's past probably are connected in some way to your senses, Right. There are certain things that you may remember. I remember uh, sitting uh, and I had three sisters and we would all go down into a room on Christmas Eve and we'd fall asleep in that one room. And I remember hearing bells upstairs, uh, sleigh bells. I remember hearing footsteps 
just the sounds were so impactful for me. I remember smells of uh, hotcakes and gravy that we would have every morning on Christmas morning, other smells that really uh, brought the, the holiday to life for me, the anticipation, the feeling of, of anticipating something. So what do your senses remind you and what memories are created for you um, around the holidays? And think about it. Is it the smells like gingerbread, pine trees? Is it is it the smell that gets you around the holidays? How about the tastes of like uh, homemade divinity or wassail or sweet rolls? Is it sounds, carolers, sleigh bells, Christmas music? How about touch? Just the cozy jammas, pajamas, or uh, the hugs from people, the cold air at night? How about the sights? Fireplaces, tree lights, shopping malls? What is What sense really lights up your Christmas. And then, can I suggest, once you figure out what sense it is, go play on that sense. Bring back those memories. And all you have to do really is touch in on one of those senses. If you love the music, then get to the music. It's a powerful way to reconnect. And then the last uh, suggestion I make about how you can, you know, really bring the holiday magic back is figure out what gift is essential for you to give. I don't believe every gift is essential, right? The three wise men brought different gifts, and everybody brought what was kind of uniquely theirs to bring. Well, what gift are you to bring to your family, to the people around you? Is it just your good sense of humor? Is it just the fact that you're supportive? Is it that you're positive? Is it that you're caring? Is it that you're loving? Is it that you're forgiving? What is it that you can bring this Christmas season that only you can give? And I'm going to bet it's something a lot less tangible. It's probably not money. It's not cash. It's not a gift card. It's something like self-acceptance, undivided attention, unconditional love, powerful things like that, like patience. So if you had a magic wand and you could truly be the most amazing person you've ever wanted to be, what gifts would you then bring to your family this year? If you were everything you wanted to be as a human being, what would you then bring differently to the family? And let me challenge you to go bring that. And let's see what happens. Let's see if it doesn't change you and change those around you by you just bringing what is essentially you. We don't need anything else. We don't need, you know, we don't need another sweater. We just need you. Interesting, interesting uh, opportunities we have this Christmas season, this holiday season. We will continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend uh, Show, hoping to give you some, some hope in life. That's our goal, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, I, earlier we, we did a story uh, recently about uh, the elf on the shelf that's missing. Have yeah. we done it? Uh, no. <laughs> but just a really quick yeah. uh, synopsis of what's happening. Because there's good news. Yeah. Finally. There, uh, there was uh, in New Hampshire, a New Hampshire town, uh, they were looking for Zippy. As you mentioned, it was their elf on the shelf. And uh, he's been missing. He's gone yeah. missing. But Terry gave us an update. Yeah. He's been found, and just in time, too. Because, like you said, oh. we are, what, 16 days away yeah. from Christmas? You need that elf. Yeah. So that you can have that uh, secret agent sitting on the shelf watching your children and, and silently intimidating. 
So is he zippy because he's happy, or is he zippy because you want him to zip it? Zip it, zip, hey. Uh, I don't know. But whatever it is, they found him. He was a little wet, but he's safe. Apparently, they found photos of him carried uh, being carried by a police officer and then placed in a parked car. <laughs> so Zippy is back. Our holiday magic is back. Deerfield Rescue Squad EMS Captain Cindy McHugh says a town resident was getting ready for work when he saw Zippy was on his doorstep and has now been returned. Maybe he was trying to escape. And when they put him in the cop car, they put him in cuffs. Bad boys, bad boys. Bad elves on the shelf. That'll be the next BYU Broadcasting show we'll be releasing next Christmas. Uh, Anyway, good news, folks. Zippy is back. You can relax. And by the way, everybody, go check on your elf on the shelf. Make sure they're still elfing and shelfing. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um... You know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's... It's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating cells, and, uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on cells, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So 
Anyway, it's uh, it's just some basic information, um, and uh, but also, I think if you just look at uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. If you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son Tim, daughter-in-law Ramey, and their poodle Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So, Before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I? Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful. 
Because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. I, if you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel. Trash, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! (laughs) A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, said there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a a gift card. Um, So if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. I drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben... Because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling <laughs> South on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we te- we contacted the iPad, told them to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. When you were growing up, did teachers, parents, or anybody ever ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Even we, when we are adults, many of us still feel like we haven't quite found what we want to do when we grow up. Joining us to talk about uh, life and uh, wonder and wonderment is Amy Schaefer. She's given a TED Talk and about this question and claims that it is the wrong question to be asking kids, that instead, maybe we should be asking them, what do you wonder about? 
She's here today to help share with us why a sense of wonder is an essential trait, not only for children, but for all of us. And Amy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So you, I loved your TED Talk. I really, I mean, it was it was just so well uh, thought out. And this uh, whole idea of wonder and wonderment, um, I, I really wonder if we ever take the time to think about what really invigorates us, about what we're supposed to offer the world. Teach us a little bit about Wondered and and how you came to this question about uh, what really, what do you wonder about? What what drove you there? Well, I think it, it refers exactly to what you're saying. It takes a little bit of time, <laughs> and that's something that a lot of our world is not necessarily built around uh, right now. And it also takes a trust and an understanding that what you have within you actually is critical to the world. And you might not, you know, always see things that readily value that around you. And that's part of the challenge. That's part of what actually, I think, diminishes our awareness of that. Because if you think about the things that you were, that you kind of knew to some degree as a kid, you know, even though it wasn't as sophisticated potentially as the knowledge that you gained as you got older, it reflected part of who you are that a lot of us have a difficult time um, connecting into now. And that's really what brought me to, uh, I mean, (laughs) my own discovery and rediscovery, I guess I should say, of wonder as an adult is I found myself missing that part of myself. And it was affecting other parts of my life and my work where I didn't feel like I knew how to draw from that well of, of my own self. And, and that affected the way I connected to others. And that's part of what set me on this path of trying to understand a little bit more closely what that is and why it affects us to so much to not have a connection to that. Mm. You, in fact, you, you now have a, a great program, a, a, a nonprofit, I believe, uh, program called thewonderment.com. It's a website mm-hmm. and you're out connecting kids and uh, from all over the world to this idea of wonder. First, I guess, explain for us and define for us, what is wonder? So everyone can kind of get up to speed on it. Yeah. So wonder is kind of a challenging thing to define, actually, which that's part of the, that's been part of my journey. But wonder, we kind of like to think of it as some kind of almost like airy fairy thing or, or just a, a more, almost like a lighthearted thing, which it is, but it has this other side to it, which is based in inquiry. And is based in questioning things. And if you think about the word wonder and how it's been defined, the the history that that word draws upon actually reflects that and tells us about that. That it is, it's inquiry and questioning the things that we see around us. And then it's the openness to allow ourselves to be changed and to allow ourselves to experience awe and experience um, things that we might not have anticipated. And I think that that's something that we, especially in a world where you know, external circumstances around us are changing so rapidly, and um, it's something that is pretty crucial, it's a crucial capacity to maintaining a sense of um, of groundedness in our lives. Mm. And you, I mean, the definition is so interesting um, because it, it comes from the same root. One of the root words of it is also uh, could be wound. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. the Ju- the German word is would be wound. And so, uh, but it's it's inquiry. It's the kind of it's the changing dynamics of our life. It's openness, and um, 
when we ask a child what they want to do when they grow up, we it, it's almost like we create a more fixed world for them that they've got to choose, that there's this choice instead of this process of wonder. Exactly. And it's, it's one of those things when that happens, it's at a pretty, typically it's a pretty, at a pretty crucial stage of development for kids where they're really trying to understand what their relationship is to this greater world that they see around them. And that's, um, that's a big part of when you are asking them and to think about the questions that we ask kids, because when you ask a fixed question like that, that not only is based on external, you know, an external state of what it is you want to be, and then also a future state of when you grow up, it actually teaches them to ignore the things that are present and in the moment within their own selves and see those as being of value in the world. Hmm. And so it really unmoors them from a sense of being able to navigate in the present moment and makes them dependent upon external circumstances, which, like I said, at this point in time are more kind of chaotic and fluid than I think that they've ever been. So we're really, when we, when we ask these fixed questions and when we back them up with things within the school system that really focus a lot of the attention on external results that are highly, um, highly specific in nature rather than flexible and fluid and responsive, we do our kids a great disservice because we're really stripping them of the thing that would make them most able to understand and participate in the world as it consists right now. And, and then they end up being confused. Like, I mean, I think we've all kind of been there where the life is always about the future that I'm going to be living. And it's not even about what's going on in me. It's about this external state. And then all of a sudden we can't li- we, we can't ever seem to live in the present. And 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 not have an answer, we always we can't like wonder doesn't mean you have an answer. It just it's it's just continuous inquiry, isn't it? It's continuous not knowing. Well, and it allows you to find a lot of joy and a lot of uh, enrichment through the question process. And because the question process, yes, it yields answers, and that's what it's intended to do. But those can be experienced from a variety of different perspectives and. When you are in a state of wonder, when you're questioning and then also allowing yourself to be open enough to be changed, it's actually, it creates a momentum in your life that I personally experienced as being pretty transformational. And, and I really, I do feel that that's something that is a pretty essential human ability. And to be honest, a, a gift that, that we don't tap into often enough because we've, we've forgotten it sometimes a long time ago. Mm. Isn't that interesting? And it's so subtle, almost ethereal. We don't, we don't pay attention to it. I, I always call it the space. It's the space between the bars that makes the difference. Uh, it's not the bars that hold the tiger in. It's the space between the bars that hold the tiger in. And we don't ever focus on the non, the intangible. We tend to, we tend to kind of hide from it. So you're saying we need to somehow, and this is the goal of thewonderment.com, is to somehow instill in our children and ourselves that wonder again and allow this new space to exist and it opens us up. Totally. And that's, I think that's the part, you know, with the wonderment and then also even with preparing for this, um, with the TEDx Salt Lake City talk that I was able to give, I, I feel that if you think about the, the, it requires some amount of permission and I had to learn how to give myself that permission to recognize those spaces, as you were talking about. And even if you think about music, I love using music as an analogy for this, because it's actually the silence 
that exists in music that allows the 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 notes to have right. any sense of significance. And so I feel like that is and we've you know with the wonderment that project was is based around just connecting kids directly to each other from all different cultures, all different places and allowing them to have a space where they're not being told by necessarily by adults what it is they should be thinking or what it is they should be achieving, but rather turning the tables a little bit and and allowing them to speak directly to each other and then us as adults standing by and watching what emerges from that because I think that just just shifting that perspective a little bit I think will bring the answers that our world really needs right now and it's you know ironic that that answer is to learn how to question again it is and and remain open and give permission to question exactly it's uh so so when you've done this around the world what what answers do you see coming um from these children as they are wandering together well, I think that it is one of the things that has been really interesting to me is building trust in that because it's it's nice to say and it's you know obviously in the form of a message I you know when I talked about what do you wonder about there's a reason why that kind of makes you know adults or kids feel a little bit uncomfortable at first yeah <laughs> and that you don't really have a ready answer because you haven't been asked that question that often and so it takes a little bit of time and with working with kids you know especially you know depending on their backgrounds um, they might not be ready to give you an immediate answer and in words and in words that you as an adult will understand and respect and, and want to take action on. You might need to be a little bit more soft yourself and looking and how you observe. And so I feel like learning how to look for how someone is telling you that, whether they're a kid or an adult, maybe in the things that surround their lives and starting to ask questions about those things. It may not be as directly and as obvious as what do you wonder about. You may need to find an endpoint that you can start with and then walk to that place together because it takes, I think it takes a lot of trust in your own self and in others to be willing to share that part of yourself with the world, especially, like we said, where there's not a lot of obvious support systems for how that would take place. No, that's so true. And I also, it's it's funny that even asking that, so if somebody came up and, and asked me, so what do you wonder about? Mm-hmm. You, like you said, there's that awkward moment, but that awkwardness just all that is is telling us we're not familiar with this part of our lives or we're not familiar with being this vulnerable or we've never totally. we haven't allowed it in each other so i mean it's funny we we just have this compelling need to know don't we like we we like the we like the question so what do you do so that then i now can can just state something and be done but it doesn't bring us closer together that question That's exactly right. And that's actually, you know, in my journey towards, you know, ultimately kind of culminating in my experiences with the wonderment, I feel like that was something that I felt at varying degrees lacking along the way. And I've worked with great people and great companies around the world that I, I found this, that space missing. And I found my own life, my own personal life starting to uh, reflect that, that gap and it becomes a bit of a blind spot in a way where, you know, we're charging ahead with business as usual and thinking that maybe that, that approach will ultimately, you know, give us an answer to this longing that we have when really the answer is, is there all along. We just have forgotten to how we access that and we've forgotten how to, you know, learn from our kids. They, they teach us how to access that in a lot of cases if we, if we're willing to observe because, they do, and, and I feel like that's been the most rewarding part of this for me personally is 
I feel like I've simultaneously been led back to that place in myself, but in doing that, I've actually been able to create pathways for kids to trust that and actually move into the world with a more confident um, awareness of that part of themselves. It's I, I totally respect you because um, it, it's hard. I work on relationships, so I'm always teaching about relation, relationships and the space between a couple or – and I feel like I'm constantly educating on an idea that isn't as tangible maybe as other ideas. But your idea, Amy, about wonder and wonderment, it's even less tangible – <laughs> and and yet you're trying to then organize a system and a team and a website to somehow go create it but you you also can't you can't so define it or you actually eliminate it. Ruin it. It's That's I don't know how you've done this. it. <laughs> welcome to the deep challenge of your uh, world. This particular work but it is the reward is correspondingly rich and I think yeah. that that's what keeps me at it is it is frustrating at times and I, and it helps me understand how kids might feel because it is frustrating at times to try to articulate something that you you know in and of itself to be able to actually be of any value or benefit to the world has to has to be approached on its own terms mm-hmm. because it's trying to teach us how to reform our ways of thinking. Yeah. And so and reforming ways of thinking as I'm sure you know and, you know, and as, as you talk about often, I feel like on the show is it's it's a it's a very open. You can't do it anywhere outside of the present and you can't right. do it anywhere outside of just being very connected within that moment. And there are not there are not too many things in the world. I mean, if you think about our focus is to much of our focus is to build efficiency. And, you know, the way that we think we build efficiency is through these external metrics when really the thing that would most effectively and um, sustainably bring closeness, uh, I think, imagination, all of these things into our world would be to actually be comfortable with being in that moment. Mm. And and that's I. It's difficult to learn. I feel it's been a very humbling process because it's shown me. And I'm by no means uh, can I say that I've mastered this, but I I've had to learn how to slow myself down and really think from a different place. Yeah. And and like I said, I think that when we get closer to that place, kids recognize that. I don't even know fully how, but they I think they recognize the kinship with that because that's they haven't left that not to you know, not yeah. to make they haven't left that behind. No. You know? That that's their that is their wheelhouse. We that's they just wrong. haven't they haven't been warped out of it yet. It's like we we we've kind of been warped away from the wonderment um, where they've they they it's they grew up in it and then so you're saying figure out a way we need to return to the children and return to their kind of paradigm of everything doesn't have to add up and everything doesn't have to make sense. I mean, I remember totally. vividly as a little kid playing with uh, a, like a, a little um, I can't remember what he was like an army man that would fit on a Lone Ranger horse, but the horse was like. 50 times bigger than the man, but it all worked. It all worked. And then some uh, some adult would come in like, well, that guy doesn't even fit on that horse. And I'm like, what? Of course he does. He's fine. It's um, – by the way, have you ever studied much of dialogue theory? A bit, and I've actually been – that's yeah. been one of the things that's interesting about this journey is 
you start realizing that people in various different forms yeah. have said different parts of this mm-hmm. and have given us these some tools these pointers to this place. Yeah. yeah. It's a really it might give you a lot of tools about inquiry, how you can how to inquire and how to just attend and suspend your thinking. And it's got a lot of principles that might – it's the language you're using. Um, anyway, I'd, I'd continue to look into that. But I, I love what you're doing. Again, we're speaking with Amy Schaefer from the website thewonderment.com. And really a, a beautiful idea, which is, is simply um, allowing children and I, really all people, I think, in the end to, to – um, to just go to a place where everything doesn't have to add up and be perfect, where you can constantly be inquiring, learning, stretching, growing, changing, where we're open and we're present. Um, and it's kind of dealing more with our internal world than forcing the external world. Um, Amy, as, as, we, as we talk about it too, what can we do as parents um, to, to maybe – make this wonderment and make these connections with our kids um, deeper and allow this space to live longer? Well, I think that there is, I think the majority of the things that we do that actually pull kids out of the state, at least on the side of parents, are born from a place of worry or fear that, like, if they, if we don't, you know, get them on the track of figuring out and, like, testing, like, getting all these things in, in order, getting our ducks in a row, so to speak, that we will be doing our kids a disservice or that they'll be left behind or, you know, whatever things, whatever form that particular fear takes in your mind. And I think that that's the simplest thing. That's the place to start um, is to actually look at that fear and question it and and ask why it is that you are feeling that and, and before responding to it immediately, because that immediate response and that space before response um, is everything. Hmm. And I think that when we talk about, um, you know, when we talk about, it's not to say that we have to throw everything out the window that is logical or, or you know, like we said, efficient of making sure that they get the things that they need, but maybe look at it and ask, is there a way that would actually reflect what this child is is wanting to share with me or with, or, you know, the world that they inhabit? Because the thing that's so interesting to me is recognizing that there's actually the efficiency of us meeting kids in the place that they are is that there is, there's no resistance to let, you know, if you, if you look at a kid when they're really determined or when they're like, or when they're really focused on something they're genuinely interested in that so often that determination and that work and that those other things flow from that place. And so rather than trying to, you know, enforce it or inflict it from an external place, just taking that beat of silence and a pause and really asking, how can I get aligned with this child? And then from that place, and then that's going to bring you to that place as well. And you, I can tell you from my experiences, you will be amazed what you find there. And mm. it will, you'll go into the world sharing different things with other people because of that exchange as well, which I think is also a big part of what our world needs. So we could solve some of the issues that we're confronting with the you know, current challenges in our education system, as well as some of the other big, big problems that the world faces I think from that place of just of asking that question and then allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and get in that place with a kid. Yeah. No, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Amy, I, I so applaud what you're doing and I, I respect it deeply because it's, I think there is so much power uh, in that going inward instead of always going outward. And, and we always seem to be 
you know, wanting everything structured and fixed and organized and, you know, somehow named and labeled. But uh, if we could go in and meet the kids where they are and let them teach us what they're seeing, what they're wondering, it actually might help us, you know, reverse engineer success in life. Amy Schaefer is her name. The name of the website, thewonderment.com, wonderful organization uh, that's bringing people together in wonder and awe. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It is Pearl Harbor Day, 76 years since Japan's surprise attack on Hawaii, killing 2,403 soldiers, sailors, and civilians, and it thrust us into World War II. So uh, here to help us talk about it uh, and remember it, Leanna Tan, one of our great producers. Hello, Leanna. Hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. You you having a good uh, Pearl Harbor Day? I mean, I have a headache, but... That's yeah. the least of my worries. Yeah, I mean, you mean, get in line. You're a college student nearing finals. You're almost <laughs> exactly. done. You're almost done with the entire journey, by the way. I know. I'm almost done here. Now you got to grow That's up. Crazy. I know. I don't know how to do that. Have, so. You know, there will be a day that we will actually throw you out of the nest. Don't tell me that. And you'll have to fly. Don't tell me that. Don't be nervous because <laughs> we'll, we'll have a padded landing if you need it. Um, so talk to us about Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I was looking online, you know, as always, surfing the web, and I went to historyonthenet.com mm-hmm. and learned a couple things. And I found this cool tip sheet thing they had about some unknown facts about what? Pearl Harbor. This so is let cool. me t- Did you guys know all of these? Let I'm me sure enlighten not. you all. Yeah, please. Okay, so the first one is, an American newspaper helped provoke the Japanese. So on October 31st, the United States, or sorry, the United News Um, which was the predecessor of the U.S. News and World Report, printed a spread that showed how easy it would be for the United B-17 bombers to blow Japan off the map. And so I guess... Oh, boy. That was kind of fueled... I don't know, according to this, it fueled their decision. That got them saying, okay, we've got to go do this surprise attack. Yeah, apparently. Oh, man, interesting. Yeah. Good job, newspapers. (laughs) Yeah, and then this um, another one I thought was interesting was... That the White House decoded a Japanese war declaration the day before Pearl Harbor, which right. some people knew that. That's yeah, I heard interesting. That. So Japan sent a message to its embassy on December 6th to inform diplomats to prepare for the decla- declaration of war. And the White House intercepted the message and decoded it, but FDR did not warn his command at Pearl Harbor. Mm. So I found so many articles about how everyone was so unprepared for this yeah. and, well, and how they could have been more prepared. Yeah. I mean, but there's well, it, it would have had to have been like uh, every pilot would have to die, right? There wasn't the ability to just fly in, drop it, kill, bomb, and then get out and then go refuel. They didn't have that ability. So it was such a surprise that anyone would dare do this. Yeah. And they dared. Yeah. And uh, this is this one I thought was really interesting is Japan almost seized Hawaii. What I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it says Admiral uh, Chuichi. Do yeah, I don't know. failed to launch a third wave to destroy oil tanks and dry docks. If Japan launched the third wave, they would have captured the islands. So the U.S. began to issue currency stamped Hawaii to servicemen on Oahu, so that the Japanese could not spend it elsewhere in case they did capture the islands. So I guess we were very. Oh, interesting. Having, it was that close yeah. to losing Hawaii. Yeah. And I've actually been to that monument. Like, yeah. I, because I've lived beautiful? in both. Yeah, I've been in Hawaii, Hawaii and Japan. And I mean, 
the, and not to make light of the situation, no. but I'm I'm kind of glad for the effusion of cultures. No, totally. Now, no, right? I mean, musubi. Yeah. I don't know, have you ever had that? No. Delicious. Is it? It's like rice with like spam on top, like, kind of oh. like sushi, but not yeah, sushi. like a spam sushi. Yeah, it's really Sounds good. Sounds delectable. And they have these like slushies with red bean paste in the middle, so it's like. Slushy American thing, Ugh. Japanese bean paste. No, but it, but you <laughs> like good. it. You it's like good. it. And they put ice cream. You in lived it. in Japan. I lived in Japan. And you <laughs> lived in Hawaii. I did both, and so you I lived loved everywhere. Both. Yeah, <laughs> that's neat though. Any other facts we need to know about? Uh, there's plenty of them, but I thought this one was also interesting. The Pacific Fleet moved to Pearl Harbor for protection. So Admiral Richardson moved his Pacific Fleet to Pearl Harbor because he believed that the shallow water would protect ships from aerial torpedo attacks. Oh, interesting. Oh, no. Not a good move. Well, let's t- he really moved him there because it's Hawaii. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to? That's why I moved myself there. So. I mean, I'd want to join the Navy just for that. Yeah. But no, not really. It's too much. They're hard workers there. Um, Anything else? Give us one more little ditty. Okay. How about uh, this one? So uh, since 1897, America had a plan to impede Japanese power. So first conceived as early as 1897, America's contingency plan for the rise of Japan as a modern military power was named War Plan Orange. The Mm. plan was updated on a regular basis to reflect the size of U.S. and Japanese fleets. Wow. See... There are a lot of little facts we didn't know about. Yeah. A lot of things I didn't know about. Well, no. And you've studied <laughs> and lived there. Yeah. But you exactly. bring up a good point. We now have bean paste in one of our drinks. I know. <laughs> a great fusion of cultures. I don't know. Maybe the, I don't know that that was one of the greatest areas of fusion of culture. <laughs> to me, I think the Sony Walkman oh, yeah. became one of the greatest. I don't know if it was a fusion or what. Uh, well done, Leanna. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Leanna Tan's her name. You're not going to want to miss her. She's going to be out in the world killing it. (sighs) Killing it. She knows it. Go take care of your headache. We'll continue the journey up next. A little empty news with Jeff Simpson. Time now to hit some empty news with Jeffrey Simpson. What's up, Jeff? So uh, this got me thinking, you know, we were talking about missiles and attacks on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Uh, If you were given the chance, would you spend the night in a uh, Cold Era or a Cold War Era missile silo? Um, No. Would I have to take my scout troop? (laughs) No, I wouldn't. So this is in Kansas. There's a Cold War-era missile silo uh, that housed a nuclear warhead 65 years ago. Oh, wow. And was later converted into an underground mansion. Oh. And now it's finding a new lease on life. That might be as cool. As an Air, uh, Airbnb location. You can stay in a missile silo. I, I mean, that might actually be really cool. Put that on your bucket list. You would do it? I would do it now. You wouldn't be scared that maybe there would be some no. wiring or something somewhere Mm-mm. that might... As long as the missile's not there, I, I, I don't think it says. Because yeah, I don't want I don't want that. But talk uh, about an alarm clock, though. What a what a great wake up call. Three, two, <laughs> one. <laughs> this door is open. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be a, a wake up call. But to me, that would be a really fun experience. Put that on your list of things you've done in your life. That's cool. 
Would you do this if you ever got frustrated? Would you ever take a uh, flamethrower and take it to your VW? Oh, yeah. You would? Yeah. Really? I think that would be really fun. I I don't know that the insurance companies would help you out, though. Why were they doing that? So it's this Illinois woman who took a a flamethrower to her Infiniti SUV, and uh, she's 47. She's from Barrington. She was charged with arson, disorderly conduct, and filing a false police report. She reported her 2016 Infiniti QX70 uh, stolen, and then firefighters found the vehicle ablaze at the end of a dead-end street near a precious metal refinery. Really? Yeah. So she was trying to pull a fast one. Yeah. Didn't really work. It never does. No. If it wasn't for those darn kids. What what did they used to say on Scooby-Doo? I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. They're always meddling. Always meddling. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, those meddling I don't kids. think kids meddle today. No. No. Now they just they just play on their phones all day. That's saying something when you wish that kids would get into more meddling. I'd give anything if my kids would meddle. And that's not even in the Olympics. Hey, we got another hour straight ahead, folks. You're not going to want to miss it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, Check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got got to – anything that's been processed, pre-cut, 
pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. <laughs> so don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. And we're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it. But that's it, it sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then... 
ask for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fun to talk to somebody that coaches these candidates. Some of them are so bad at uh, knowing what to do and how to do it. Can you imagine being paid by somebody to, I don't know, change how a Bernie Sanders does stuff or how a Donald Trump. Hey, Don, we um, we need you to not say some of the things you're saying. Well, you know, the whole Muslim thing. Could you just tone down that rhetoric? And like uh, we've heard, he he may not even believe some of this stuff because it works. It works. You know, there's the whole Times, New York Times uh, interview that he did that came up in a, one of the debates two or three, four debates ago, where the big question is, what is... What did he say off the record? Because with the journalist, he was saying something off the record. And many say what he was saying is he was saying it's not quite. I'm not going to keep talking about this wall thing. In the end, it's like not. It may not matter what they're saying, but it seems to matter to us, doesn't it? It seems to matter to us. What he, what he was talking about was uh, what with the New York Times, something around the idea of he's not really into this, uh, all the his immigration stances he's taken. Yeah. That he doesn't really want to go that far with it, but he did in the speech because it, right. as you said, it brought people with him. And that is there a, is there a tape of this? But the New York we, Times is like, it's up to Donald like Trump. Donald. We'll release it. Yeah. We'll release everything he said. Yeah. And he's like, no, I believe too much in the freedom of press <laughs> to keep their to keep their secrets especially when they're mine but what what it might be telling us is people will say anything to get elected right we're even finding out in a lot of these states where donald is doing well immigration's not even an issue it's not even an issue but what it might be that people like is the fact that donald seems so passionate about what he's saying he's a salesperson and he might be just selling his message better. He may not even believe in the message necessarily. Many question if he is conservative, right? But he'll sell it. He'll sell it. And so uh, be careful. Check your gut on that and go get the information you need. You can get it from enough sources. And it doesn't mean he's just a bad guy either, these politicians. It might just be that they're, they really want to win. Interesting, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. More ideas, more tools next hour to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, in a Quinnipiac poll, uh, only 29% of Americans approve of the GOP tax plan. 
I mean, those are some pretty bad numbers, right? For considering the fact that uh, this is this was a tax bill that had to get out as quickly as we could because the people were demanding it so much. Only 29% of Americans approve of the plan. So this morning we have uh, the president, um, we have a, a guest joining us to talk about uh, uh, this the recent um, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the plan um, put forward by the GOP. And uh, joining us will be um, Ryan Alexander, Miss Ryan Alexander, who is the president of the Taxpayers for Common Sense, which is a um, an organization that is a, a budget watchdog and trying to promote fiscal responsibility and the opposition of wasteful tax and spending policies. Uh, Miss Ryan Alexander, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. What it's such an interesting thing. People want. Uh, you know, a break on their taxes. And yet, um, for some reason, uh, right now, 29% approval rating of this current tax plan. What can you tell us about the current plan? And, uh, and, And a lot of the fears have been about the fact that it's going to add to the deficit. Where, where do you stand on that? Uh, We, you know, we think it's time to go back to the drawing board. I mean, we support major tax reform. We think there should be a, a reduction in the corporate rate, but this bill isn't the way to do it. It adds, you know, at least a trillion and more likely more than $1.5 trillion to the deficit over 10 years. And this is a terrible time to do that. You know, we have, we're almost at full employment, although there's lots of weaknesses in the economy, economy and and we are already on a trajectory to have a really significant debt and deficit growth in this decade because of simple demographics, the increase in cost of health care and retirement. So we don't want to crowd out other investments with increased interest costs um, at a time when we're, you know, albeit a slow recovery, we, we are in a, you know, a, a long period of recovery. It's, it's not the time to do this. Is, is there a, um, because it seems like country by country, um, as far as a lot of the, the, um, the countries go, we're not paying overly high taxes, are we, compared to the rest of the world? No, we, we, we don't. Um, we're not one of the most highly taxed countries, developed countries in the world at all. We're kind of right squarely um, on target. We have our corporate rate is higher than other countries, and that's one of the reasons why we think it's a good reason to take it down. But at the same time, the percentage of revenues we get from corporate tax is a lot lower than it used to be because the tax codes become so riddled with special interest breaks. And one of the things that we think is most problematic about this bill is that while well, they you know, for the last five years, we heard a lot about eliminating the brakes and cutting the rate, and that's how you'd pay for cutting the rate, but they didn't eliminate the brakes. The vast majority of individual tax expenditures are left untouched, and they just reduced the rate on top of that. Mm. Is it uh, one of the claims of the GOP is saying that this is going to bring a lot of that money that's out of the country back home? Is that then not true? Well, I think there's a couple things that are true. Definitely by saying bring your country bring your money back and we'll give you a reduced rate what to bring it back that that will certainly bring some money back that's that's kind of one time money that, yeah. that and well it's great to get that one time money that is something that you got to think about as not necessarily something that is going to help us long term fiscally we have to solve the international tax problem it's definitely tricky the overall approach of this bill has some you know has some things to be said for it. It's not, I wouldn't say that I would never go with a territorial system. That said, you have to be really hard-nosed about the revenue um, because I think that, you know, we we know that this system will definitely get an influx, 
influx of cash in the front, but then we'll likely have reduced revenues because there's still going to be reasons to go overseas for some for some companies. It's you know it's a global marketplace right now. If your costs are labor and you can get cheaper labor overseas, you might do that. If you're um, you know there's going to be changing dynamics that will still give countries uh, still give companies reasons to either stay or go. Um, reducing our corporate tax rate, again, a good idea, but you got to do it and understand what it's going to do to the bottom line. Does it overall do anything for the middle class? That's one of the things we keep hearing is how the middle class has been forgotten for many years. And is is this bill going to – is it really just for the rich as we hear in some of the the language out there? Is it really only kind of business-focused or are the middle class going to benefit? Uh the majority of the benefits go to business owners and upper income folks, but that doesn't mean that all the benefits do. Um, you know, in the in the short term, um, lots of middle class co- co- folks would get a tax cut. Some middle class folks would get an immediately tax increase. But one of the things about the Senate bill that's kind of so cynical is that none of the corporate breaks expire, but all of the individual breaks expire. Hmm in uh, 2025. So if nothing was done, then in 2026, most people in the middle class would pay more than they would under current law. And, you know, that's A, not what anybody likes. And B, you know, it also is just an indication that they expect to be able to do another tax bill because it's always hard to, you know, say, oh, now you are going to. Yeah. You're going to lower our, you're going to take away our taxes. Right. Um, And, uh, and that means that it's an even more expensive bill, and so the, the deficit increase would be even more than $1.5 trillion. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing where, like, tax policy is all about trade-offs. It's all about making hard decisions. And this bill, they didn't make those hard decisions that would help figure out how to pay for it and make sure that, you know, everybody understands why they made the trade-offs that they did. Uh, as uh, as the president of Taxpayers for Common Sense, you've been at this 11 years, I guess, as president. I mean— can you have real bipartisan tax policy? Have you have you seen it? Have you seen a good example of where Congress, the Senate, has been able to get together with a president and sign some really powerful tax policy together? Um, I think there are. Uh, I think it's possible for there to be bipartisan work. No question, it is a huge uphill battle now. In the years I've been in Washington, it's gotten more difficult, particularly. Um, well, in the Senate in some ways and in the House in other ways. But I do think that, you know, it's still possible. There are other areas of policy where people have been able to work across the aisle. We've seen that even though they can't come to agreement, all of the conversations about immigration reform are bipartisan conversations. Mm-hmm. There are people on both sides of that aisle. And that's also true in agriculture policy, which is, you know, a very expensive and complicated area of policy that those, you know, the reform efforts are always bipartisan. So there are areas where when you really sit down and talk to members of Congress and senators and find out kind of what their most important priority is, and they can, you know, talk to each other about where their differences are, they can come to some agreement. They can, you know, it might not be that they can immediately come to agreement on an overall tax reform, because that might be a bridge too far to start with. But you could start by doing a couple things that would really um, make a difference. You could you know, take some of the international taxation issues. There's one change you could end a practice called deferral, and that would, you know, that without doing the whole um, big tax reform that's needed, it would make it much harder for countries to uh, companies to put money overseas. So that would be, you know, 
a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I do. I also think there just there definitely has to be a will. I think that people need to um, voters need to tell their representatives that one of the things they want to see is that they're they want to see them try to work with the other side. Um, you know, one thing I always um, because we work with you know we work with members of Congress across the whole political spectrum, um, and you know I always say when I speak in public that you know. Whatever news channel you watch every night, every night watch the opposite for five Ooh, That's minutes. right. Yeah, rotate. Time is saying. And if, you wanna, if you're thinking that some politician is the worst thing you've ever heard of, imagine <laughs> if your favorite person in public life did the actions of that person. Would you still totally think it's the worst thing or right. would you forgive it? We have to start thinking a little more empathetically. You know, it's yeah. to be hard-nosed about policy, but we need to remember that we're all Americans and we've got to work together. No, that's a, that is just basically – that's awesome advice. In fact, last night I – I haven't wa- I won't watch the the cable shows anymore. Right. They're too exhausting for me. Yep. So I but I I watched both of them uh two of the main headliners last night and uh, I thought I had seen completely I I think I had really seen the full picture of yeah. both sides completely different positions and views and yet um they both had the exact same amount of energy and uh, you know, seeming hatred towards each other. Yep, it was yep. it was so uh, interesting to me. What do you think, too, about how the Republicans, for example, are pushing this through? I don't know all the rules and the laws that they're there or the order that they're trying to follow. But a 50 vote uh, bill versus a 60 person vote bill. And um, because they're pushing it through on the 50, they're just they're, all they need to do is get the Republicans on board. Um, does it work better if we if we demand a higher standard like 60 votes? Uh, I think in this case it does. I um, you know, what they're using is a, a process called um, budget reconciliation, which ironically was designed to protect um, against huge deficit increases. Hmm. Um, but within those rules, you can pass it with, you know, 50 votes plus one. And um, but the rules of the Senate require that there be no increase to the deficit out of the 10 year budget window. And that's why we see this bill that is just full of gimmicks. So the timing tricks, there are you know, there are things like the opening up of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling, which might be a good idea, but... In the tax bill? um, It's in the tax bill as a revenue raiser. And it's got very, just like the growth projections are very sunny, the the projections for revenue from that that step are very sunny. So they are looking for ways to make it look like it's going to spend less money. And if they took the time and tried to, you know, figure out how to get 60 votes, I think we'd have a better bill. Yeah. And there'd be a lot fewer people, you know, left out of the process. This is a this is a bill that affects every single American, and we should not have it just be decided by 50 votes. In 1986, when we last did major tax reform, the final Senate package passed by 97 to 3. Oh, wow. And, you know, Reagan was president. There was yeah. Of, you know, there's a lot of division then too. That's pretty. I mean, again, that's worth working for. Um, is one of the things, I guess, going back to Reagan was this whole concept of trickle-down economics. And now everybody's afraid that we're reliving this trickle-down idea because this is the idea is we're going to bring in so much wealth uh, from businesses and other things that it's going to create more jobs. But we've also heard a lot of the business people saying, oh, no, no, if we get that money back in the country, we're just... We're investing in our – we're buying back our own stock. We're going to just invest in our company, not necessarily make jobs. Is Has trickle-down economics been proven valid or is there a real fear that this would increase the deficit instead of paying it out? 
Um, I definitely think there's a real fear that the deficit increase projections are real. I think the, the questions about kind of what's going to make a company hire more people and raise their wages are, you know, they're not just questions of cash flow. There are questions of the labor market, of the demand for their, their products. If you, live in a, if you live in a region where there are lots and lots of people with the same skills you have, it's still going to be hard to get a job. Mm. If you have a very, you know, very highly sought after set of skills, you're still going to, be get to, you're still going to get to be paid more. Um, and, you know, companies who get money back in the country or have, you know, have a lower tax liability because of this bill, they're not going to say, great, I definitely can sell more product right away if they haven't seen the demand for their product. They're going to they're gonna do stock buybacks, you know, distribute it as dividends and watch the market. Um, sure, uh, there is the possibility, given where we are in the economy, there will definitely be some companies that say, great, I have more cash, I can do something about this and, and hire that extra person. So we will see some effects, but I just don't think – you know, it would be a mistake to say there'll be no economic growth right. as a result of tax cuts. It's just that I don't think there's any chance it will be as dramatic as um, the proponents of the bill are saying it will be and that it'll pay for itself. The- what do the rest of us do? I mean, what I, I think is admirable admirable about what you're doing um, is the fact that you get you go into Congress, you talk uh, in some of their committee, you're, some of their committee meetings, you testify before them. What do the rest of us do? And and any ideas or suggestions for just the average Joe who wants to start to influence somehow their their congressional leaders, their senatorial leaders, what can I do? Well, I think it's always a good idea to um, show up at the meetings in the district, in the state, when people come home. I, you can call and write your member of Congress. They They really do count and read the things that come in. Um, And, you know, also write a letter to the editor. Look on, um, you know, look for places in your community where you can engage people and say, this looks like it's a problem. Let's figure out what we can ask our member of Congress to do that will make it better and not worse. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I I guess now as they're in committee and conference committee, they'll put something together. Do you have any sense it'll be better? Uh, I don't have any sense it will be better. I think that they are really working hard to try to make the numbers work so that it can meet the rules of the Senate. And, um, you know, what I've heard, there's a couple different things we're hearing. One is that they might increase the corporate rate to 22 percent. But, you know, it doesn't sound like what they're going to do with that extra revenue from that is reduce the deficit. It sounds like they're just going to increase the number of individual breaks that people are interested in seeing. Hmm. Um, so that concerns me. Um, but I, um, we're going to have to see. They have a very tight vote margin in the Senate. So, you know, what some what is going to convince some senators to abandon this bill is exactly what's going to keep other people committed to it. So it's a balancing act, and it's not too late to. to you know, go back to the drawing board. Oh, boy. It's always a, it's always a balancing act. Uh, Ms. Ryan Alexander, thank you so much for your time. Again, she serves as the president of Taxpayers for Common Sense, has been doing so since 2006. Uh, and it's just, I think, another person on the front line influencing, trying to find a way to keep the rest of us educated and informed, but also, you know, helping create better tax policy. Uh, We'll continue the journey, folks. A little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! 
So I spend a lot of time in my life and in my everyday uh, interactions working with people that are that, are, that tend to be out of sync with each other. Um, in my coaching business, we we really spend a lot of time with couples and businesses and business owners in how to get in sync. And it's not an easy thing, especially you look at the tax laws, like we have Congress and Senate totally out of sync. And that makes sense, right? Large bodies, everybody's been uh, somehow was elected by a constituency that has expectations. So one of the things I wanted to do is, and one of the things we try to do on the show is always bring it back to your life and how and, and things you can do for you and your your family. Some rules here for how to get back in sync with your spouse. Um, I've, I've seen it even in my own marriage, in my own life. Uh, lots of, you know, over years of me being a small business owner, uh, my wife and I could easily get on different pages where she couldn't understand what was going on in the business. I didn't understand what her complaint was about going, what was going on in the business. And so recently we found a way to actually get more involved by getting her more involved in the business. And, uh, you know, some are like, Ugh, how's that going? But it's going really well, quite honestly. The more we know, the more informed we are, um, the, the better off I think we all can be. And so here are some other rules I've learned about uh, increasing your connectivity and getting in sync with each other. First and foremost, count the bars of your connectivity. How many times have you lost a call, and the minute you lose the call, you immediately then check the how many bars you have um, on your service, right? You're, you have to now see, oh, no wonder we lost it because I only have one bar. Uh, it might be better that we check the bars as we're communicating. And so start checking in with each other and finding out how are we? are we. Are we on the same page here? By the way, one way to detect that is if you notice a lot of negative emotion, if you notice a lot of mistrust and a lot of misinformation and, com- and confusion. Anytime you, you notice those signs, those are the signs that connectivity is down. Negative emotion. So if you're starting to fight with each other, misunderstand each other and not trust each other, you probably ought to slow down, make sure we go get our bars up and start connecting and communicating in a better way. Another thing you could do is identify what is the interference. What's stopping you from being able to communicate with your partner? Is it simply, you know, is it just that we're running around too much? Is it that we never actually are talking eye to eye? Is it that we're doing all of our communication through text? There is going to be more and more uh, noise, they call it, in the channel if we if we don't have a clear signal, if we're not if we don't increase as many ways as we can to make sure the message is understandable. Do, you know, do you keep have you ever, if you've ever gone inside a building and you couldn't uh, your phone wasn't working because you're in the middle of a building, you have to eliminate some of that interference, and you'll notice what you do is you start walking more toward the outside of the building. You'll go stand near a window. You'll do anything you can to decrease the the interference that's coming from those walls. The same is true in your marriage. Sometimes you need to get closer to each other, start walking closer to each other, be closer to each other, and remove some of the walls that are between you and your partner. Another rule, fairly basic one, is you probably need to make sure you have the skills and the tools to connect. Uh, more and more, I just did it with my Wi-Fi in my business. I tried to change a password, and it messed up the entire thing. And then I was without Wi-Fi in my office for a few days until I could figure out how to make that work because I don't have the tools to change my Wi-Fi. I don't know how to do it. So I had to go spend some time learning how to do it. And once I've learned how to do it, now I can do it going forward. 
Each of us needs more skills, more tools. Um, there's a simple rule about five hours a week of basically spending five hours uh, a week reading, reflecting, experimenting. That's a rule by Michael Simmons, um, who just basically says he tries to learn something, you know, five hours a week. And uh, why not? Man, that seems to help, right? Other people that are doing it are Warren Buffett, Oprah. They spend a lot of time learning. Uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, they're constantly learning. Another rule, turn up your receivers. At some point, don't always assume it's a signal problem because the, the transmitter's not transmitting. Make sure the receiver is on. Make sure you are tuned in and paying attention to your partner as well. And finally, <clears throat> keep testing. And when you lose connection, try again and see if it's happening yet and keep testing and keep testing and keep testing until we get connected. A lot of times in our – we do that with our cell phone, right? If we really have to get a call out, we will keep – How about now? How about now? Is it working now? How about now? But in our marriages, sometimes I've noticed we give up way too easily. If we can't communicate, if we're not understanding each other, a lot of times we just are done and we walk away. You can't do that in a long-term relationship. If you want to make it work, let's just start showing each other, I'm committed. I'm committed to being connected to you and to keep learning and to keep trying and to keep uh, being there. And if not, let's we'll try again in five minutes. Let's try again in 20 minutes. Let's try again in a half hour. I love timeouts in relationships, but if you have a timeout, my friends, you also must have a time in. And the time in should be as quickly as you can make it be. And if you don't know how to have the time in, then go learn some skills. Go get the tools you need and or just keep listening to the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, one of our producers here on the Matt Townsend Show is Leanna Tan, and she's been doing these little uh, bits, we call them, or now little tangents because of her last name, Tan. Her graduation is coming up, and uh, as she's wrapping things up, she's going to tell us about the five things that she will miss most about college. Man. Six years ago, I walked onto a college campus bright-eyed and pretty clueless. I had no idea college would last a good quarter of my life, or that it would take me to Hawaii, Utah, New York, and Greece. It's been a wild ride, full of long sleepless nights, (sighs) tension headaches, test anxiety, 20-page papers, malnutrition, and overpriced utilities. But as I come to a close of this college journey, I look back and realize it hasn't been terrible. In fact, there are a lot of things I'm going to miss. Part of me wants to grab hold of the flagpole and cling on for dear life so they don't drag me away. (sighs) So, in tribute to my university experience, here are five things I'm going to miss about college. Number one, choosing my schedule. It's so nice to be able to just say, Okay, I want to have class on Monday and Wednesday, but I don't want anything on Friday, so I'm not going to choose any on that day. And I don't want to wake up any earlier than 8 a.m., so I'm going to start my first class at 10. And then being able to have an on-campus job that works around my schedule and my crazy loads of homework. It's been so nice to be able to get in a couple hours of work, take a couple hour break to go to class, and then go back to work for a couple hours. It breaks up the monotony and makes me so much more productive. I don't know how grown-ups chip away at the workday for eight hours straight. Number two, scholarship money. 
when am I going to get the chance to write an essay about my goals for the future and then suddenly have thousands of dollars in my pocket again? That's like getting paid a dollar for every word you write. If I can find a job with that kind of wage, I'll ship myself off to the hills of Ireland and pursue my lifelong dream of becoming a novelist. I'm going to miss that lump sum of tax-free dollars in my checking account. Number three, easy access. Living on campus is like living in a tiny little town with everything at your fingertips. I mean, you've got restaurants, museums, a salon, a post office, printers, shows, movies, books, internet, a bowling alley, a doctor's office. The only thing they don't seem to have is parking. And boy, am I going to miss a free gym, free counseling, and free tennis racket rental. I mean, do you realize how much that stuff will cost me in the real world? An average gym pass is like 40 bucks a month. And a single counseling session could be like $200. Yikes. Right now, I could literally just live on campus. Eat in the cafeteria. Shop at the bookstore. Shower in the locker room. And sleep under my work desk. Huh. I could have been saving hundreds of dollars all this time. Number four. Student discounts. Oh, man, I'm really going to miss these. I'm considering just extending my graduation just to get my free pocket point sandwich from Chick-fil-A or to keep my student trial of Amazon Prime. And I just discovered this last week, unfortunately, but I get a free download of the Adobe Suite and a free web domain. So many perks that will just be ripped from my hands in a couple weeks. And that golden student ID that has gotten me through so many restaurants and so many museum admissions will soon be null. I never thought that awkward student ID picture would ever mean so much to me. And number five. Learning. I mean, in all honesty, this is the greatest part about college. The opportunity to learn from such successful, knowledgeable, talented, and seasoned people in a safe environment. I think I really will miss stretching my mind every day academically and being able to get constructive criticism back on my mistakes. I'll miss having that support and safety net of teachers and mentors and even fellow classmates cheering me on, giving me ideas, and helping me be the best I can be. It's been a good, productive six years. Thinking back on everything I've learned and become since that day as a wide-eyed 18-year-old, There are paths I've crossed that I never thought I'd experience. So I guess, here's to the next six years of my existence. Who knows where I'll end up? Thanks, college. Despite your hidden fees and frustrating multiple-choice exams, I'm gonna miss you. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent.